0: 10, 9,
1: 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Game Over.
0: Welcome, welcome, welcome. It's Game Over Montreal, and uh, we're in our usual state, guys. It's the same as almost always. It's yet another loss for the Montreal Canadiens, but I have two... Amazing guests joining me tonight, Rachel Dory and Dmitry Filipovich, two good friends of
2: mine. So let's welcome them in. How's it going? It's going well. I uh, I just had to watch a, a Montreal Canadiens game from start to finish, so I've, I've been better. But um, yeah, it was good.
0: <laughs> yes. Thank you both. And thank you everyone for watching the Montreal Canadiens in order to be on this show. <laughs> I feel like I have to like. And be gracious or like give out some welcome back, or some sort of like packages like they give out at the Oscars, just like invite people to come here and be like, thank you. Thank you, please. You had to watch this excruciatingly boring team
2: for a full 60 minutes. I mean, here's a peek behind the curtains for, for listeners. So Andrew, before the season messaged me and he told me about the concept, he sent me a spreadsheet with all the games and he's like, pick whichever ones you want to come on the show for your pick. Right. And so of course I'm thinking all oh, the avalanche, they're pretty fun to watch. Worst case, I'll just get to watch. Kael McCarr and Nathan McKinnon do cool stuff for 60 minutes and that's something I could see myself willingly doing so I signed up for it and as the game went along at least we got a little more of that I thought Kael McCarr was awesome to watch but um man like the the first the first period of this game was was grueling and it just made me really appreciate uh what you're subjecting yourself to this season and also just how hard you're working grinding out all these games because that was that was an experience yes uh it hasn't been easy
1: (laughs) (laughs) I feel like it's hard though like you don't want to continuously dump on a team but when you look at the circumstances Colorado is playing what I would conservatively say is an AHL caliber goaltender they got absolutely run out of the building last night in Toronto traveled probably got into Montreal at like two o'clock in the morning or something like that and then you look tonight, and I think all of us are kind of in an agreement here. Like, there was no point where Montreal was the better team in this game.
0: No, no. I mean, they drew more penalties, I think. <laughs> like, you got to <laughs> really go through it with a fine-tooth comb to find They had more right? fans
2: in the building than the Habs did.
0: Yes, they did that. Although, probably got booed more than the Avs did too, so... Yeah. Someone
1: threw a jersey on the ice? Like, why are we doing that? (laughs) I just... (laughs) I admire
0: somebody... like I admire somebody who keeps it on, just because if you have the expendable income to throw a $200 jersey on the ice... I hope it's a fake one, because you're a jerk if you throw a $200 jersey on the ice, no matter what team you cheer for.
2: Yeah. Yeah, well, okay, so I have, I have this crazy stat that I was digging up while I was prepping for this show, and, and and I promised the two of you that I would share it, so I'm just going to get it out of the way here. So, Gail McCarr has now played 10 games since he came back from his injury. He has eight goals. They're, they're giving him credit for that goal today. I thought it was tipped by Landis Goggle. Just, so just roll I. with it and say that he scored. So, he has eight goals and 15 points in those 10 games. The Habs leaders through 25 games this season are Josh Anderson with seven goals and Tyler Toffoli with 15 points. So... Um, that kind of just sums up the the disparity between these two teams and uh, yeah I'm just gonna I'm just gonna leave it at that
0: it yeah it's not pretty and I I think that uh, you know you look at just the power play in this game and it's just hard to watch I know they got the one power play goal which was like a little flick floater from Ben Sherrod that kind of nodded the game at one and I guess you can say that that's good, but I don't know. That's to me, a point shot from a guy like Ben Chirot is more lucky than good. And overall, their power play was such a mess.
1: I think you look at it and you go, you watch like the first, I think that was like the first three power plays Montreal had, they had zero shots and Colorado not only had a goal, but they had four high danger chances. Yeah. They didn't have a shot until their fourth
0: PP. There. Four. Under
1: no circumstances should you be getting outchanced on your power play by like a margin. If it's one or two, maybe, but still no, that shouldn't happen. But when we're talking about the fact like Dave Poulin was remarking that the entirety of one of the the Montreal power play that they got scored upon on, they almost got scored on twice on their own power play. And then they spent the majority of the time in their own zone. Like that just can't happen. That seems like it's like Chris Weidman. That was way too nonchalant there.
2: Well, I mean, that's Andrew. Chris Weidman, right? <laughs> yes, <laughs> That's kind of who he is. Yeah. Um, well, Andrew, the, the thing I was curious about was, you know, this team's been generally one of the worst power plays in the league for, for years now. And I, I was curious heading into this season to see what it would look like just now that Shea Weber wasn't around. So they I guess they didn't like feel the moral obligation to just feed him and funnel pucks through just like kind of low percentage point shots. And it's been worse somehow. Like obviously Mike Hoffman not not being around, um, you know, puts a damper on the expectations. But like I it's it's almost hard to be this inept for for this long of a period of time.
0: Yeah, I mean, even like not just this game, but if you were unfortunate enough to watch the previous couple games, they were this is not the first time that they've had like stretches of power plays without a shot. Like, I believe they went three in a row. Might not have been the last game. Might have been the game before. Might have actually been against the Canucks, which is super embarrassing. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's weird because you look at this game and it's actually an improvement over the last game because at least the Colorado Avalanche are good. Like, coming off the second half of a back-to-back whatever, they're better than the Vancouver Canucks, and they were listless against the Canucks. Like, the shots were even at certain points because the Canucks will score one goal, and then they're like, We're done! <laughs> <laughs> we did it! We accomplished our mission! And then they sit back, and the Canes were like, Oh, okay, I guess I guess we can score now. And then they tie it up, and I think they got like another 12 straight shots for the Canucks, and it was like, this is a bad scene. Like I, I think the issue right now beyond just strategy is it's gotten to the point where guys just want the season to be over and it's pretty blatant.
1: Well, I look at it and I go, I don't think they're necessarily helping themselves because if you look at the personnel that is available to them, so obviously Mike Hoffman has to be removed from that because he's not in the lineup, but it, you're doing a disservice to a player like Cole Caulfield by playing him on the fourth line. And if you want him to get easier matchups, the way to do that isn't to have him playing with Michael Pazetta. It's to have him playing in Laval. And so I look at it and I'm like, this is clearly a lost season for Montreal. So what do you have to lose by playing Caulfield with Suzuki consistently to see if they can develop some chemistry because those are the two brightest young players in the organization. So I look at it from that perspective and say, if you're not going to make the playoffs this year, what are you going to do to develop the future of your franchise? Because that's, I think, where the attention needs to be. It needs to be on Romanov. It needs to be on Cole Caulfield, Nick Nick Suzuki. I mean, obviously you're going to play Tyler Toffoli and Josh Anderson, but I look at it and go, you're doing a complete disservice to your young players by playing them on the fourth line. That's not how anybody gets better like Mitch Marner didn't get better by playing with Matt Martin on the fourth line that's like not how that happened and I I kind of see the same thing with Cole Caulfield here and I'm wondering to myself okay he either needs to play in the top six and you develop him at the NHL level or you need to send him to Laval for the rest of the year so that you don't wreck the kid
0: yeah, I think the Laval thing is gonna happen sooner than later. I would, I would guess as soon as Mike Hoffman is back, that Cole Caulfield will be down in Laval. And this is kind of what I was afraid of, and what I've been pushing all season, like the lack of development. Like ironically, Caulfield got an assist tonight, but uh, like, what did he play? Let's see what his ice time was tonight. Cole Caulfield, sixteen minutes and thirty-seven seconds. Four and a half minutes on the power play probably helps, but. <laughs> you know that's not fourth line minutes i guess so you could give that to de Charm. at least he actually tried the kid out there tonight and he was visible at certain moments but yeah they're not they're not supporting him and this is something that i had written down even before the game because when the lines came out and Ca- caulfield was put on the fourth line with Pizetta and perot i was like what, what what the friggin' hell is the plan here <laughs> right <laughs> he, like, it's not even legible what they're trying to do and it's the same thing with matthias norlander which like It's too early to say, like, is Matthias Norlander going to be an impact player, right? Like, he was an impact player in Europe. Uh, They don't know what he's going to be at the NHL level. Even if he's going to be a regular NHLer, we don't know. But he's taken strides defensively as he's gotten used to the North American ice surface. And, like, the first few games were real, real rough. (laughs) Like, really rough. But he got better. And then they immediately scratch him after he has a pretty decent game against the Canucks. And he hasn't really been given that much ice time anyway. And I think like if the coaching staff came out and like Rachel, you would have more experience in this because you have worked with players on like a skills basis and, you know, talking to them every day. If the coaching staff came out and said, we're going to send Norlander back to Sweden, but we want him to play his nine games and we're going to try to spread those out as much as we can. So we have the most possible time with him if that was put out there and fans understood Norlander understood, I feel like there wouldn't be much pushback over what's going on, but we don't know if that's the plan. That's like me pie in the sky saying like, if something positive is going on, maybe it could be this, but I don't think it is. I think they just don't trust him. But like, is there any negative to putting it out there and saying like, the plan is this unless he completely surpasses our expectations this is what we're going to do. Like, what's the negative to do that?
1: So I look at it and I, I will, when you talk about sending a player back to Sweden, if you look at what the Sharks did with Eklund, they gave him a few games and they said, okay, like you could clearly play, but we think you would be, you would benefit from another year in Sweden. So they sent him back and I never think it's a good idea to have a young player sitting in the press box. I don't know if they can send him to the AHL cause I haven't looked at the the contract, I probably think if you want him to get used to North American ice, that's where you send him if you can. Um, Because I look at it and uh, just kind of experience with young players, Jesper Bragg comes to mind while I was in New Jersey. He was kind of one of those guys that was in and out of the lineup. um, And it was one of those things where it's like, do you play him, do you not play him? And one of my arguments was, well, we're not really gunning for a cup at this point. But if we want him to be a part of what could be a cup contending team one day, then he needs to play. It does him no good to consistently sit in the press box and not play games because it's not the same as as practicing at any level. There's just not that same competitiveness there. And so for me, if you don't think Norland is ready, then he needs to go somewhere where he could play 20, 25 minutes a night. And if that's not in Montreal, then that decision needs to be made quickly.
2: Yeah, Yeah, I'm I'm with you on there. It's tough because, Andrew, you hit on it earlier. Like, when you reach the point in a season, which unfortunately for the Canadians is already 25 games in, where, like, everyone just wants the year to be over because they're having such a miserable time, like, that's a pretty pretty crappy work environment for for anyone, let alone someone who doesn't know any any better. Like, if this is your first exposure to the NHL and you're just, like, around all of these grumpy veterans who don't want to be there and are, like, already making plans for vacationing, like that kind of sucks. And, and and so I think sometimes that can be overblown in terms of like, Oh, you want to have, you know, consummate professionals, or you want to have this type of environment to, to help develop young players. But I really do think there, there's something to that where you watch what what's happening in Anaheim this year. And I think it's huge for them to have just a situation where like they're playing fun hockey and they're not, not just having this like soul crushing experience where every night when they come to the rink, they're going to get embarrassed and people are going to be making fun of them on social media and stuff. So I, I do really believe like, Yeah, I would normally say it's good to just give your young players as much ice time as you can and and let them figure it out on the fly. But if there is another alternative like the AHL, it might be better to just kind of get them away from the situation.
1: I would send both Caulfield and Norlander back. Honestly, I I don't think either one of them has anything to gain by being a part of this in the same way that like last year, Drysdale and Zegers, like Anaheim basically said, nope, you're not coming here. And you look at where they are this year, I think, Obviously not to the same degree, because those two are ridiculously good. Um, I think if you sent Norlander and Caulfield back to Laval or even to Sweden, um, they could come back next year and really be impact players, because I think um, that'll be a better development spot for them.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think if you had the choice to basically run all the kids and loosen up your systems work and just say like, listen, you're going to make mistakes out there. Just go, you know, if you can do that and you're not worried about the rest of the season, I feel like that could be salvageable for the young players. I think one of the issues that the Canadians have is they have so many long-term contracts. Like you look through their roster and I've seen a lot of people speculate, like, oh man, they could get a lot for like Yoel Armia at the deadline. Armia has three more years at 3.4 million. Like they just signed that long-term contract. In the offseason that's like almost all of their players are in similar situations like i think the only unrestricted free agents actually i think Lekkinen might still be restricted are Lekkinen and shirat Yep. and like they're gonna get a huge haul for shirat that's pretty much confirmed like every insider is saying like at least a first round pick his playoff success last year looms large. He's having an amazing year from the shooting percentage perspective. He's also having the best year of his career from like the underlying numbers perspective, which was super shocking because I thought that he was going to crater completely without Weber, but props to Ben Sherratt. He's been great. I think that leaning into the offensive side has really helped him stay away from trying to be the guy that chases guys around the net front. But outside of that, like I'm not even sure that they should trade Lekkinen. Like he, he's been one of the bright spots on the team He
2: leads the team in five and five points this season
0: he does and he's been an absolute killer in terms of like control of gameplay I, he was like top five in the whole league and expected goals percentage like he's been amazing I look
1: at it i look at it and i go okay so jeff gordon and people want to argue he won a couple lotteries but i think the most impressive thing about that entire ranger situation was how quickly he tore it down right to the studs. Like everybody went out the door and value came back the other way. And so I think one of the underrated things here is that, yeah, they have contracts. And this goes to my working theory based on the just research that I've done that you do not hand bottom six players and bottom two defensemen any term on any contract ever. You just don't do it. But I I do think Jeff Gordon's the right guy to be making the trades because he showed with the Rangers that probably his best asset is his ability to ship guys right out the door and get at least some tangible return. So I wonder, kind of going down the roster, what that looks like for Montreal. I think he keep Romanov, who apparently broke his nose when he hit Paling and Makar which is interesting. But I, I do wonder about some of the veterans. Like if you think you're going to rebuild, what do you, are you maybe trading price? Are you trading to Foley? Are you even trading Josh Anderson, Brendan Gallagher? Like these are the questions that maybe need to be asked.
0: Yeah. No and we're, no we're no going to ask him on those players. No the, that them. is the big question, right? Cause a lot of those yeah. guys do have big term and are signed on the wrong side of like their prime, right? Which is kind of the issue of what Bergevin has been doing lately. Uh, we're gonna talk about that, but first, first I do have to pimp the SDPN shop because I'm wearing the crab people shirt. If any, on oh, that's the other way.
1: Where did the crab people thing come from? Okay, because it so
0: really cool. Jesse Blake <laughs> has a live stream where he like plays video games on Twitch, right? And it's affiliated with SDPN. And I guess one day while he was playing NHL, he was like, "What do we call like the people who tune in for the streams?" And everyone just started posting crab emojis, and he's like, "Crab people." so jesse's fans on the twitch stream are the crab people if i have that story wrong anybody from sdpn gonna correct me either here or on the discord and you can find the official discord at sdpn.ca and of course these lovely game over mugs and i've got lots of game over merch that just came in as well so lots of stuff to choose from lots of cool stuff you can even get a shirt that says shirt in honor of the new jersey devils
1: Man, that jersey's
0: so bad. <laughs> it's so bad. But you know what? It's so bad. Is it as bad as the blockbuster ass jersey that the Nashville Predators just pulled out?
1: Honestly, I think it's worse. I don't hate the Nashville jersey. Oh.
0: I think the Nashville jersey, I don't at, love at it. least, like
1: I'm not purchasing it. But... At least
0: it's bold. I'll say that. I don't like it, but at least it's bold. Whereas the jersey one is boring.
1: This one yeah. is sick. Like, I don't know. I love the bolts one. No, I don't.
2: I yeah, like them. the I like I like the bolts one a lot. I think the predators one is catastrophically bad. <laughs> I think the devils one is bland enough that it's fine. I understand why people are outraged. I, I think it's kind of funny. I obviously they weren't aiming for unintentional comedy, but um,
1: they yeah, the, predators into one, it.
2: the predators one is is really bad. So I think uh, evolving been, wild the predators
1: one would have been better if like the letters were the same
0: size Mm -hmm. (laughs) i've seen a bunch of people point that out that the letters aren't the same size and apparently it's like
1: some ode to like posters or something i'm like i don't care just make them the same size (laughs) oh man
0: evolving wild posted that it looks exactly like the old packages of act two popcorn and it does Uh, like it is a hundred percent the same and it's (laughs) it's very awful (laughs) one of our mods will the national one is horrible andrew let me explain go for it will tell us how bad it is but yeah, we'll we'll get into the trade stuff because Pierre Lebrun on the TSN broadcast brought this up and today is December 2nd, which happens to be the anniversary of the game where Patrick Wall allowed nine goals against the Detroit Red Wings that precipitated the trade that uh, I think a lot of people believe that it was just because of that game when, and not like something that was happening over a long period of time. Some background on that for those who don't know, Rajon Houle hired Mario Tremblay specifically to Cal Patrick Waugh. He thought that Patrick Waugh had too much power in the Montreal Canadiens organization. So he brought in somebody that he knew from their playing days. They butted heads. They hated each other. So that whole situation was like, you know, you put vinegar and baking soda in a bottle and you shake it up. It was going to happen no matter what. It just happened to happen that game. And of course, when I was eight years old and this happened and... Couple days later, when my dad told me the news that they traded Patrick Waugh, I didn't believe him, thought he was joking, heard it on the radio, cried for like an hour. So then, Pierre LeBron on today of all days talking about the Colorado Avalanche being a possible destination for Carey Price. And I'm no longer a super fan or anything, but I just had like these like PTSD flashbacks of myself as a youth looking at a franchise goalie going to the Colorado Avalanche and possibly winning a cup. And you know, if it happens, amazing for Carey. I'd be super happy for him. But also, don't put that out there, Pierre. <laughs> what the hell are you doing? Not like, today. Honestly, it's
1: it's so funny because you look at the Avs and the one thing, like they are one competent goaltender away yep. from being the single most terrifying team in the league. Like Tampa, fine because of all of the cap situation and Julian Brisbois being a master of that should shock no one, but Carry Price is at like, even if he's not Carry Price of Stanley cup finals, because if that happens and he's playing on the abs, they're winning the cup. Like that. It's just that easy at that point. But if he just goes and is average in Colorado or any goalie goes there and gives leave league average goaltending Colorado becomes terrifying at that point.
0: Yeah. If price goes there and he's half of the player that he was in
2: last year's playoffs, they're winning the cup. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Is there, wait, I'm missing something. Is there any substance of this?
0: Uh, No, it it was, I mean, there could be, but Pierre was just speculating that it could be a fit, right? He wasn't saying that it was something that was going to happen, but he was like reading tea leaves. He thought that there's a, a distinct possibility that price is not interested in staying around for a rebuild, which yeah, of course. He's thirty-four. Yeah, he's the same age as me. Yeah. So I probably wouldn't be either, especially after going to the Stanley Cup final last year, right? Like you got a taste of being close and then got your soul crushed in the in the final and took you that to Edmonton, heart. I mean
1: like who like would what, say I no like, to that? I feel like Edmonton gets has to get a goalie, whether it's flurry, a price obviously a little maybe a little bit less so, but like, you cannot have two of the three best players on the planet and just be like, "We're gonna run with Koskinen and
0: Smith." Like, sure you can ask Kenny Holland. You know, you can't go all in every year, Rachel.
1: Yes, you can when you have <laughs> McDavid, and you know, like all three of us sitting here know that Ben Sherat is going to be an Oiler.
0: He'd fit in. Like, <laughs> you know what's uh, au- like, kind of awkward. I feel like he'd fit in better on the Flames. Who Oh he
1: would. Daryl Sutter would love
0: him. Yeah. Like I think he would actually fit in decently on the Flames. He can skate. He's a big guy, fit into Sutter's system a little bit. And I feel like the Flames are a little bit weak on D. Like they've got some guys who are like playing well and young guys, but uh I feel like they could use a little bit of an upgrade.
2: Yeah. No, but it's such a it's such a Kenny Holland woo. It if is anyone. If, if anyone is gonna pay like a hundred and forty cents on the dollar. You know, Ken, Kenny's just, just just itching. He's got his finger on the, on the trigger. He's ready to go. Um, yeah, I don't, I mean, so what did David Savard last year? Obviously, there was a the double retention, right? Yeah. But basically, the Lightning wound up giving away a first and a second. Was it a first, first and a second in the end? First and a fourth? Like
1: that. I was gonna say I definitely think it was multiple like a picks. Person of definitely yeah, it was definitely picks. two picks because they gave a pick to
2: Detroit just to basically help them to right? launder.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah, the Steve Eiserman laundering machine.
2: While yeah. letting them keep Brian off on their AHL team, that was oh, so man. good, so funny. I mean, uh, if you can't do
0: a great cap circumvention move like that it, when you're a bad team, what are you even doing here? I know. Like, get creative, and you know what, Sharat. I've been a big detractor of his for many years because frankly, for the most part, he's not been very good, but this year he's playing really well. And the fact that his contract is so edible for lack of a better term, at only 3.5, it's yep. expiring. He's going to be attractive. And especially if they wait closer to the trade deadline where there's not much of that cap, it that's going to be left. There's going to be a lot of suitors. I think that's going to be one nice thing for the Montreal Canadians this year, because most of the roster is not movable in the season with the term that they have, with the flat cap, unless you're taking contracts back. And then you have to wonder, like, are you progressing? If you're taking, like, what are you getting back? Is it going to, like, how much term is it? There's so much more calculating that has to go to, into
2: that. Well, the, the ironic thing is I actually do think Ben Chirot can be a useful player. Like, I, I think yeah. he's got a sneaky creative offensive game to him when he decides to to play that way but for whatever reason maybe because of his size or because like coaches just feel the need for defensemen that look like him to, to play a certain way he winds up like getting sucked into playing this just sort of like dumb meat and potatoes game where he winds up just taking a bunch of penalties and stuff and the ironic thing is i feel like whichever team winds up trading for him is probably gonna do so with the vision of him being that type of player and so they're not actually going to use him in a way or, or allow him, enable him to to play the way he's actually effective. So instead they're just they're just kind of dooming themselves for failure, basically. I, I imagine. Like I can't, I I just I think like if we're joking about Kenny Holland going on acquiring him, but that's probably the vision that he would have for him if he went out and traded for Ben Sherat right?
0: What'll happen with Ben Sherrat if he becomes an Oiler is they'll be like, Well, you know, there's no penalties in the playoffs because McDavid can't draw anything, so Sherat's not gonna take any penalties. And the NHL will suddenly decide that they're going to hammer down on cross-checking in the playoffs and Ben Trott will spend the whole time in the box and they'll go out in the first round again. This is my prediction.
1: Yeah. I It's honestly, like I look at it and it's just like anytime, like the NHL sending out that memo, don't criticize officiating. And I look at it, I'm like, if you don't want to be criticized, then like do your be job at your job. Like, I don't know what. And the thing is, is behind the scenes, like it's super apparent that the refs absolutely see these penalties. They're being told not to call it.
0: Yeah, and that's so a, that's the, the thing, Rachel, right? They're being told
1: the NHL is not protecting their officials. So if you don't want them to get yelled at, then enable them to do their jobs.
0: A hundred percent.
1: Because at the end, no one gets to call Mike Murphy and Stephen Walkham and whomever else and be like, I have a problem with this call, please undo it. Like you don't just get to do that. And so I look at it and it it completely takes away like anything that's remotely nice about the playoffs, Yeah. right? And so I I totally think Ben Chirot's going to be a, a really coveted guy because, yeah, that contract's fantastic. And two, he plays the type of game where you can get away with literally anything in the playoffs save for, I don't know, like really biting someone.
0: <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you can still get away with biting if you're Claude Lemieux back in the 80s, right? But uh, uh, like, Will got back to biting- us
1: in the playoffs because like you know how the whole like suspension one one game is actually two games i feel like biting's like now nah, you're getting five
0: like oh, you think? maybe
2: i mean i don't know but alex burrows bit a bruins glove and he didn't get any games
0: yeah that was stanley cup finals and through the glove maybe it matters if you're wearing the glove <laughs> you have take, to take the glove off <laughs> you got it you got to yeah. get flesh
1: you have to cause blood you have to draw blood like <laughs>
0: Man, you have to bite so hard to actually draw blood on, a, like, a human finger. Like, I know the skin's not that thick, but, like, you gotta, like, bite and tear, you know? You have two
1: toddlers. You yes. have two toddlers. Okay, Dylan is what, three? Four. Okay, Dylan is four. Dylan would get in trouble for biting at age four, yes or no?
0: Miles would get in trouble for <laughs> biting. Like, they don't like the... When someone bites in the doing? baby room, they get all nervous at the day. they they're like, oh my God, uh, oh, your child has a bite mark on their arm. And I'm like, I, I don't care. Like <laughs> kids bite, like he's 16 months or whatever at that time. Uh, yeah, you definitely get in trouble when you're a baby. Like, It's, it's just not acceptable behavior for anyone, let alone an adult who is in the NHL making over a million dollars a year. But
2: the best part, wait. Brendan Lemieux is making over a million dollars
0: Is he?
1: Wait a minute, what? (laughs) I'm
0: assuming, but probably not. He might not. Um, I
1: think I I liked Hannah's tweet the best, which was, if you're playing in the NHL and you bite someone, you are not allowed to play in the NHL anymore because the NHL is an adult league and you are not an adult if you bite someone.
0: Brendan Lemieux is making 1.55 million. Nice. Classic. Brendan Lemieux. Is that a contract that the Rangers that Jeff Gordon signed him to? Oh, good question. I don't know. I I didn't
2: check. It can't be any worse than the
1: Barclay Goudreau deal.
2: Yeah, that's Um, pretty bad, too. I I, I just want one final note on that, though. I did think the funniest part of the entire report was then being like, just to be clear, we're only investigating the first bite. (laughs) The first bite. (laughs) We're aware of allegations that there was a second bite. There was a second. I didn't even see that. I didn't watch the video. They
1: suspect. So they suspended him for the bite on the left hand. But the blood was on the right hand, and they were like, he "There's no evidence." Time, yeah, yeah. There's no evidence to prove that he bit him, and I'm like, in a court of law, the the, the bite mark and the bleeding would count as evidence, guys. Like, is he a fucking
0: piranha? What? Like, what's going on? <laughs> oh <laughs> God it's uh-huh. wild i promised honestly. will that i'd get back to him on that uh, preds jersey because he wrote down a list of why it's so bad he said all the letters are different sizes which rachel mentioned well, the words smash and ville aren't even centered i didn't notice that but now that it's pointed out it's gonna bother me it says yep. look at the back too. the numbers on the back are different sizes oh my god don't tell me that
1: oh no i need And to the see nameplate letters now. are
0: different too <laughs> and he said the back of the neck is also really bad jerseys man they are the great unification of hockey fans in that we hate all of them and it's always fun to talk about Uh, i actually got a question because i hosted the live blog for the montreal gazette today for tonight's game so i didn't have a chance to like take physical notes which i usually do i just had like the notes that i wrote on the actual live blog but i mentioned on there, like watching this season reminded me of watching the Canadians in 2011 12, where just like everything possible went wrong. They fired Jacques Martin as opposed to firing the GM this time. And Randy Cunningworth came in, he was an Anglo. Jeff Gorton comes in, he's an Anglo. And it just like there's so many injuries. No matter what the Canadians do, they just can't get it going. They never get any momentum during the season. But in 2011 12, And, like, both teams are better than their record. But in 2011-12, they had a young core of Pacioretty, Subban, and Price. I believe Price was, like, 24. Subban and Price were, like... Or, Subban and um, Pacioretty were both, like, 20 or 21. This team doesn't have that. And I would argue that they don't have any player on the roster that's even close to any of those players at that time.
1: I think... From an assessment perspective, like Nick Suzuki and Cole Caulfield, are like are probably the bright spots there. They are. They're but good. The problem, but like, but they're not. They're not that. And like Romanov and Norlander, God bless them. But like, not a Norris Trophy caliber defenseman by no. any stretch of the imagination. And I have a hard time believing that their first round pick from this past year is going to find himself in the Montreal Canadiens lineup at any point. And I think that's a huge problem is the drafting. Like I actually just finished a study. I want to say like a week and a half ago for my thesis and Montreal ranks dead last from 2005 to 2016 in players that they drafted playing 200 NHL games. And that's not even, I haven't even got to like the value part of it yet and and what value they've brought to their teams. But to have that like that's just unacceptable like you just can't have that you look at their first round picks and and you wonder why this team isn't good and that's another thing i think jeff gordon's gonna do a really good job of and he should bring in martin madden because the ducks are first in developing and and playing nhl players um so i look at that and i go they don't have a core at all and i would be moving out players for first round picks for this year and next year big time
0: Yeah, it is if you're not seeing that uh, you can turn something around really quickly and keep guys like Price and Gallagher in the fold, it has to be a complete teardown. And I, I think that if they were to commit to trying to do something quickly and like be bad for two years and then try to like take something out of the last two years of Price's contract where you like hope he's still good, I think you could get to a point where you're a playoff team, if you're a really good manager and you have the right coach, but I don't think that you can get to a point where you're a competitor. You know what I mean? Like, or not a comp- competitor, a contender. And I, that's the issue that I have with the Montreal Canadians is that for so long, the goal has just been make the playoffs and maybe something happens. You got Carrie price. Maybe he'll carry you. And for a lot of that time to get to the playoffs, especially during Michelle Therrien's time here, they redlined Price in the season where he was playing like 70 games a year or on pace for 70 games a year if you discount the games that he missed for, for injury. And by the playoffs, he's injured. You know, it, there was a period of time in Price's career where it was like six or seven straight years in a row he ended the season injured. <laughs> it's just... You can't win that way. And I, I just... For me... If I'm looking at the Montreal Canadians and I'm managing them and the last guy, all he really got to was mediocre. My number one priority is I'd rather be really bad for a stretch or really, really good, like top of the league. And you're going to probably have to be really bad to be that good. So like you do not want to be stuck in the middle. That's like the number one thing that I would fear. It's safer for a GM to be employed stuck in the middle. But
1: Minnesota Nashville.
0: Yeah, safe <laughs> as death. Uh,
1: David Poyle has the best job security in the entire league.
2: Yes. yes. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a fact.
1: The trick is take <laughs> over uh, an expansion it's a straight team. Straight
2: up fact. Take I mean, over Andrew, an expansion team. Where do you where do you stand on this? Because I the whole idea of drafting versus developing and what's to blame for as as Rachel noted, there like they're basically they had that 2007 class, right, where they got Pacioretty, Subban, and McDonough, and then they, like, whiffed on, like, 15 straight first-round picks or something like that. Yeah, like, I'm not writing off the guys they drafted over, the like, in, like, King Ghoulie and Cold Coffee, but the point is, is, like, they clearly, there was something wrong, right? And, and the two of us did a did a podcast to plug my own show here in early September after the Cock and Yemi offer sheet uh with with our pal Arpin and Basu and, and we were we had like a full discussion about this. And I thought it was a really interesting convo and he had all these anecdotes about how like they were just the way they were utilizing Kakanami and some of the stories he heard and sort of like what they were asking of him. And, and it was a clearly like all right, your mileage on the player and the actual talent he has can can vary, but that's not putting him in a position to succeed based on like they're asking him to do a certain thing. And it's clear that he's not set up to do that. And so I think this organization clearly they're clearing house and they're going to bring in new people but they need to figure out where that, like where that went wrong. And and sometimes it could be a matter of both of them. Um, But like, especially now with the value that these high firsts that they're going to have over the next year or two or however long they suck, like they're going to need to nail these picks and they can't afford to keep blowing them. And they're going to need to figure out once they bring them in, how they're actually going to set them up to succeed as pros.
1: So yeah, one of the things I tough. actually one of the things I noticed in my research of the haves because I did not realize just like how bad it was. I think it has more to do with the developing than it does the drafting. And I just like I was pulling it up as I was looking at it. If you look at Montreal's picks in that window, the ones they traded away before they played meaningful NHL games where they went on to organizations that had better track records of development those players actually ended up being more meaningful parts of NHL organizations. The two that really jumped to mind are Ryan McDonough and Mikhail Sergachev. So like in the Habs organization, they did not play meaningful games at all. They went somewhere else and McDonough ended up the captain of the Rangers. And then obviously later winning a Stanley cup, Sergachev is a very key part of Tampa Bay's blue line. And so I think there's a difference between you drafted a player that played 200 NHL games, but if they don't play and contribute for your organization, it doesn't count. And so the Habs have clearly identified talent. They just haven't figured out yet how to develop it so that those players that they draft, someone like a Caden Gooley, for example, play those meaningful NHL games for their organization as opposed to a different one, because what you don't want is trading somebody like a Caden Ghoulie, which is similar to Ryan McDonough's situation. And then they go get developed by an organization that develops players better. And now they're meaningful games for, for another organization. So I think it's more development than it is drafting to be fair. Yeah.
2: Rachel, I'm on that I'm, side as well. All I'm hearing there is I was looking this up. So Charles Houdon is now playing for the Syracuse crunch. Are you saying I shouldn't give up on Charles Hudon yet? You he, saying he still has a chance? Cause I've been waiting for the past like seven years.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I probably, I think that ship may have sailed.
2: Okay. okay I'm just, I'm, not I'm just clearing him. it up. I just wanted to make sure.
1: But like, okay. So to me, like I look, Caden Gooley needs, I would say a year in the AHL and then he could probably play meaningful games. Cole Caulfield, we've already discussed. They've they caught Emi's gone. Paling. I think they brought him up a little bit too early and then they sent him back down and, that was just not a good situation. Sergachev, we've discussed, he's played meaningful games for another organization. They actually got Victor Mete in that draft too. And while he did play meaningful organ, uh, games for the Habs, you could tell that that development was also skewed by the amount of up and down situation that that's going on. Noah Julson was more an injury product than anything else. But then you look at guys like Nikita Sherbach, Michael McCarron, Jacob Billa rose like, what are we looking
2: at here? Yeah, oh. I think, I think if... Michael McCarron was probably going to fail
1: on.
0: Yes, Michael, that was a terrible pick. It was a terrible pick at the time it was a huge reach. I mean, that, that whole draft was enraging to watch because they had a ton of good picks in a relatively deep draft. And they went on a run on big guys and Zach Vocali buying him on like junior hype for a team that he barely saw shots on. So yeah, not, not a great one. The best player they got out of that was Arturi Lekkonen, who is who they, who I wanted them to take at the time, which is kind of nice. But uh, again, a guy who should be better at the NHL level, he's starting to show it now, but like people forget that Arturi Lekkonen broke Daniel Alfredson's scoring records in the playoffs for Ferlunda. Like he was incredible. He had a great, uh, world juniors, like he had a scoring profile. And I know he had some wrist injuries that kind of slowed the beginning of his NHL career, but the Canadians kind of focused on putting him into a checking role. And this is an issue that constantly gets glossed over when people are talking about the draft and development. and Everyone wants to blame Trevor Timmons. Ellen Etchingham wrote a fantastic piece in the summer that I brought up several times on this show that compared the Trevor Timmons essential scouting staff that didn't really change that much. Shane Sherlock came in, uh, under Bergevin as well. But for the most part, the scouting staff didn't change too much. The decision makers didn't change too much under Ganey and Gauthier compared to under Bergevin. And the hit rate was like massively different, like blow off the doors different. And like, yes, a lot of that's going to come from the 2007 draft where they got uh, Subban, McDonough and Patcherati in the, in the first and second round. They also grabbed Yannick Weber, I think in the fourth round, who had a decent NHL career as a third pairing seven number seven defenseman. So like they did amazing in that one draft, but overall as well, they had a good hit rate. They had guys that be turned into something. Brendan Gallagher was the last one last draft before Bergevin came in huge hit, right? So actually I don't think he was the last draft. He was 2010. So it would have been 2011 was the last draft before him. But even you look at some of the stuff that happened in Montreal and you see a lot of people now want to, credit and give bergevin his flowers because back in 2013 during galchenyuk's rookie season he talked openly about how he wanted to take morgan riley and not alex galchenyuk which first of all why would you say that when the kid is playing on your team you're like undercutting him for no reason as the general manager of a hockey team for like a 19 year old player but second of all I just don't believe that Morgan Riley would have turned into Morgan Riley in the Montreal Canadiens organization, because this is a guy who at 27 years old is still an absolute defensive mess. He's an all offense, all transition guy. This organization hates those kinds of players. I don't think that he would have been given the trust that he was given in Toronto. And you want to talk about something that belies development. Go back and look at Alex Galchenyuk's rookie season, the scoring numbers. For a teenager, he put up the highest per 60 scoring numbers since Sidney Crosby in his rookie season. Shortened season? Yes, absolutely. Take it with a grain of salt. But the dude was money. And then all of a sudden, he gets told he has to play more defensively. And year by year, you can see it. It chips away, chips away. The confidence goes away. And all of a sudden, down in the shitter. you know. And there's other issues at play with Galchenyuk with between his father and knee injuries that derailed his career as well but if you can't insulate your guy if you can't get the best out of them out of a top 3 pick and you're not willing to put in the effort which i think is the craziest thing is that the canadians don't spend on development the way that other rich teams do i just what what are you doing what are you trying to win
1: I look at it and I say, when you are a team, we're going to go every original six team to start because all of them have basically unlimited money. Um, to me, I look at it and I go, if you have that level of funding in your organization where like if, if you went to Jeff Molson and said, I think this, this, and this is going to make the team better. It's going to cost about X amount of dollars, but it's going to make the team better in the long run where you wouldn't be worried about him saying no. To me, there's almost no excuse to not have development. Now, if you're a smaller market team that is a budget team, maybe like up the road in the nation's capital or like Arizona, for example, then maybe you're not spending an exorbitant amount of money on player development. To me, the way I look at it is there's no reason that Montreal can't have the same level of expenditure on development that the Leafs do, that the Carolina Hurricanes do, that like basically any other team has. And so if I am Montreal, and I know they loathe to take things from Toronto, but it's a copycat league and Toronto is very clearly at the high end of developing Players In the last five years, I think you need to look at what they're doing and going, okay, they've got skills coaches, they've got video dedicated like uh, somebody dedicated to only prospect video, they've got development coaches going around the world and skating with their players, no matter where they are, uh, you've got dedicated skating coaches, coaches skating coaches, skills coaches, uh, mental performance coaches, d- dietitians, like all of that stuff is super important because it's about maturity as well. Most of these kids haven't had to live on their own at, at any point. You've got billet parents that are cooking for them. So something as simple as a dietitian or a nutritionist could help. And so I look at it and I go, Jeff Molson's got the funds for that. And I think building a player development department that, is, that stacks up to be among the best, because there's no reason Montreal can't afford the best. They absolutely can they could really accelerate their rebuild if they did that.
2: Yeah. I mean, yeah. The Leafs are are great. I, I I know they're investing a lot of resources in making sure that all of their young players get the best possible chance to succeed, which it often comes down to. Um, so yeah, I think, I think both of you hit the nail on the head. I, I really don't have anything else to add on, on the matter. We're just like, going to give the Leafs their flowers. Them? I mean they've <laughs> no
1: but I say like you look at okay being a francophone we established I think last time I was on here that's super important Carolyn willette literally lives in Montreal yes so does Julie too yep and they both coach Concordia which is one of the best women's programs in the entire country and none of us should be surprised that that's a thing Marie Philippe Polan is also affiliated like yes these well Poulin is still playing pro, but like Willette and Julie Chu, there is, first of all, no reason that you can't hire them and pay them more than whatever Concordia is paying. them. Like you absolutely can. And two, we've seen what people like Danielle Goyette and Haley Wickenheiser can do. There's no reason to think that Carolyn Willette and Julie Chu, who have completely turned around the Concordia women's hockey program, can't do the same thing. For Montreal Canadiens prospects. I absolutely think they can. And you've got the outlet there that Carolyn Ouellette is francophone. Like, it's right there.
0: Yeah, It's, it should be an easy decision to bring in Carolyn Ouellette or people in that same realm. It's just the idea of bringing in opinions that have never been aired in the Montreal Canadiens organization. That is exciting to me and part of why. Like I'm not buying what Molson said in his presser hook line and sinker. I like the idea of him, uh, creating a essential medical team for mental health because I think that's really important in Montreal. Like, did either of you guys catch the interview with Max Pacioretty with the uh, Alan Walsh and Adam Wild? I, oh, I thought yet. it was
1: fantastic. Oh, it was
0: really good. It was the most open I've ever seen Max. He's usually a very tight individual, right? He, he doesn't want to give you a lot, but he was very loose. And he was talking about his time in Montreal and how much he loved it. But like at a certain point, he realized like the weight of everything and how in this city, you can't get away if there's a negative attitude, right? So if things aren't going your way on the ice, you're going to hear about it everywhere. And while he was here, the organization did a really poor job of not letting that seep into the organization as well. And he was saying like one thing that he would love to see change that he thinks about all the time is like, once you're in the bell center or plus bell, that is like a positive only zone. And there's nobody in there who's talking about anything except for like what we can do to get better. Where is instead of like saying you're shit, you're screwing this up, your turnover cost us the game. We're like threats because let's face it. Michelle Terrian was the coach. You know, Although he said that he really liked Michel Tarion, which was kind of funny because he name check Brier while talking about uh, being threatened and stuff. And Briere has talked about in his book that Michel Tarion was like a psycho. So <laughs> kind of confusing from Max, but whatever. It's okay. Uh, but yeah, that kind of stuff I think is very important and something that you need somebody who understands the market to be there for and the organizational philosophy. And kind of why... Not to go off on a complete tangent, but why the whole idea of Patrick Wah doesn't make sense right now for the Montreal Canadiens. Like, I feel like Patrick Wah, for all of his issues, at the very least, you can say nobody in the world wants to win a game more than Patrick Wah, right? But I don't think he can get along being number two. And if people aren't simpatico yeah. in this organization between like Jeff Gordon and the incoming GM, it's not going to work. They need to be in lockstep at all times. And this new management structure is very interesting. I'm excited to see where they go with it. But I hope that it's a very varied and diverse management structure with a lot of people whose input would not have been valued under the previous regime.
1: I think I look at it and I go, the one thing that when I was an intern with the, like, MOSE. I got to hear Masai Ujiri talk a lot. And one of the things that really, really has stayed with me was his, his sort of view and vision for how to build a front office of decision makers. And essentially what he said was the more diverse you, diversity you have, the more diverse perspectives you have, the more well-rounded decisions you can make as a group. And so I look at it and I go, Montreal has a chance here to really lead in terms of being diverse. There was an organizational catastrophe in the summer and Jeff Molson made a commitment to learning. And I think if he follows through here and has a diverse hockey operations department and really values, has makes sure that those people are valued, I think that's a really good example of actual action being taken. And when you look at that and you say, okay, women, people of color, just general people who would not have been considered for jobs previously, you can have those diverse perspectives and you kind of get what Masai Ujiri is talking about. And well, I think we can all comfortably say that the Raptors organization is a pretty good, pretty well-run organization. And that really I think should be what organizations strive to be is, is that level of diversity and that level of input. And I think that Montreal really has a chance to be a leader and from that perspective and, and go in that direction.
0: Yeah. And there's a, there's a couple comments in the YouTube chat that I just want to address really quick here, because there's a few people asking if they think that uh, the Canadians will ever choose a general manager based on the, be- like being the best versus uh, speaking French. The general manager will speak French and English. That's a job requirement. But what do you guys think Jeff Gorton is? Like, why do you think he's there? He's not French. Like, guys, he is functionally the general manager. It's just they're setting up the management structure so that there's two of them. And there's a hierarchy. They're sharing the load. The other person will be someone who can speak French fluently because you need to communicate with the market. You need to understand the market. They brought in the English guy. We can stop spreading about this whole thing. <laughs> like it's really not the issue that people pretend it is. And like, I brought this up on the last show. And every time there's a GM opening in Montreal, a lot of Anglo media are like, oh, well, w- w- they're not looking at the best guys. Cause they're only looking at the French guys. And then you look at every other team when there's a general manager opening and it's like, uh, the top candidates are, uh, Peter Chiarelli and <laughs> a guy who worked for Peter Chiarelli. <laughs> and that's it. And you're like, oh, and, and okay.
1: seem to be Jim Benning. Or, yeah, so or Dale like
2: Ta- Dale Talon against Dale Talon's in room. there. Yeah. That's like insane. It's actually driving it crazy.
1: In a way, so sometimes
2: wild, like, the Francophone
0: thing kind of insulates you from bringing in the worst people.
2: Yeah. Well, I, you, when you were referencing uh, something Ellen wrote earlier, I thought you were going to actually reference the piece she just wrote recently about that. But fantastic, um, by the oh, way. Everyone should check it out. Chaotic Chaoticneutralzone.com. Oh Yeah. So I recommend that that. so good, but what I, what I was going to say was like, and to this point of like having Jeff Gordon there as basically the GM and then bringing in a Francophone speaker to be the actual GM by, by definition, right? Like I think that, that type of general infrastructure is something I do feel really strongly about just because here in Vancouver, like you can see where it goes wrong with the Canucks. Obviously those, there aren't those language considerations. But, Dimitri,
1: there's no problems in Vancouver. <laughs>
2: no, no, it's a, it's, a, it's a, <laughs> the Vancouver no Canucks problems. have played so
0: hard since J- uh, Jim Benning was assumed to be on the block. They want him there, Dimitri.
2: Extend it's, Benning. It's <laughs> it's a masterclass on how to run an NHL organization. I highly recommend any team takes takes a look at it. But no, like the <laughs> the, the the like, you can see the inherent issue in relying on just one person for this job that requires a bunch of different skills that don't necessarily have anything to do with each other. Like, I just think, okay, you want to put together a winning team that gives you a reason to feel attached to the organization, right? That gives you, makes you feel good about cheering for them. And I think when someone steps in to run a team, that's what they're striving for. But you also need to be able to communicate the plan. Like you need to have a vision, but you also need to set expectations for your customers and what they should expect, right? And the cu- the fans are the customers like they're the ones who are supporting the team financially by buying jerseys buying tickets buying streaming services to watch their team like all like all this stuff right and so this idea that like you can have a Jim Benning running your organization and then trotting him out there and having him just like stumbling and bumbling over his words and looking like a complete buffoon and then you being proud of that person being the face of your franchise like that's just stunning to me and so when you get into this conversation about do they need to be able to speak French in this market? Like, like, yes, you need to be able to communicate with a significant portion of your fan base, which doesn't preclude you from having Jeff Gordon there to actually work behind the scenes and do what he does best, which is build a hockey team. There you go. It's a win-win. Like, I really don't understand the issue to that at all.
0: Yeah. And someone asking uh,
2: if the new GM is just
0: essentially a patsy. No. Like, do you think Bobby Webster Webster is a patsy in the Raptors? No, it's just Masai Ujiri is the guy with the big ideas, right? If there's a big move that happens, of course, Masai Ujiri is the guy who's driving that big move. But Bobby Webster is probably the guy who's in the locker room more often communicating with the players, understanding what's going on. And then he brings that up to Masai. He's the guy who's, you know, negotiating contracts, talking with agents. Whereas the VP of hockey operations, Jeff Gordon is going to be doing all the big idea stuff, looking at where is the future of this team going? It's diversifying what the job is able to do. Like one person just cannot do all this stuff. Like I talked to Eric angles for my show, the cross check NHL show earlier this week. And he was talking about like how one of the biggest jobs of the GM that nobody really talks about is just managing players. Like managing personalities, putting out fires, talking about like, I'm not getting enough ice time on the power play. I'm going to complain to my agent and like, listen, this is why liaising between the coaching staff and the players, like managing is in the title for a reason. And it's not just managing the salary cap. So it makes sense to have different personalities there. Like I've heard a lot of talk about Daniel Briere being up for this possible job and people be like, "Oh, he's not qualified because he's been only in the ECHL. Yeah. To be a full GM by himself. Absolutely not qualified. But to work under Jeff Gorton, where you're learning on the job and your main job is basically relating to players and understanding what they're going through in this market. I don't know if there's a better option than Daniel Briere. Like he went through hell being on that team with Michel Therrien, calling him out, disrespecting him constantly as a veteran player who wanted to come back to Montreal to you know to be the francophone guy to stand out there to hold the torch at the beginning of the season and he's just trampled all season long he knows how bad it gets and he's also had a fantastic career so he knows how good things can get so like that kind of perspective can matter and meanwhile you've got Jeff Gordon to do all the other stuff so it's it's a better management structure and i think this is something that a lot of people just haven't understood yet
1: well i look at it and i go OK, if you're picking an ideal candidate, it's interesting that it's Montreal because the ideal candidate actually exists. The problem is, is he's a two time cup champion with another team
0: who the Canadians let go, <laughs> by the way.
1: So like he does exist, but he's employed. Now, I think Jeff Gordon. I think your point about Eugene and Webster is super salient. And when you look at it, it's almost exactly what you want because when you look at Jeff Gordon with the Rangers he never spoke it was always John Davidson and so if you have it's basically that same situation he's not going to be holding a press conference where he can't speak to 60 percent of the media like that's not going to happen but it was super clear that his vision for the team in New York was really well thought out and really well done And so you want to hire people and put them in a spot to succeed. Well, what's Jeff Gordon's strength? Tearing it down and building it up. Talking was not involved there. And so you hire him. He's an Anglophone. He can chill behind the scenes just like he did in New York, go about his business quietly, do his thing. But having somebody like either a Martin Madden Jr. who has that draft success or like a Daniel Briere. You heard Max Pacioretty talk about it in terms of being able to relate to players. If you have somebody who has not only been a player, but has actually played for your organization as a French-Canadian, not only can they relate to the fans in terms of being a Francophone, but they can also relate to the players in terms of the pressures of being a Montreal-Canadian. And I think that that's a unique pressure, and it's something that will come out in how they manage those players. And I the other thing that Jeff Gordon's gonna do that the GM probably isn't gonna do is field calls from Jeff Bolson. Because I can tell you, like Josh Harris called Ray Shiro pretty much like four times a day when I was in New Jersey. It was kind of nuts. Like, and I think you just have Jeff Gordon, he manages the vision for the team, the ownership kind of relationship, and how things operate. And then you have somebody like Briere or Martin Madden who manages the relationships with the players who is in charge of communicating Jeff Gorton's vision to the public. And they could probably do a better job of doing that than Gorton can, given that speaking French is a thing. So I think it's actually the ideal situation for Montreal. It's just kind of a shame that Julian Breezeball wasn't available. We could probably save them on salary because now there's, you only got like one salary to pay instead of two.
0: I'm assuming that Julian Breezewell at this point would not save them on salary. If they were able to pull him out,
2: I think yeah. probably true. I feel like it'd be like 10 or $12 million a year. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think like an underrated part of this is just having someone in charge of the team that inspires confidence. Yeah. Uh. And clarity in- of
0: vision, right? Like that's one of the biggest issues with Bergevan's whole tenure is he flip-flopped his vision constantly until he finally settled
2: on something which was bad defensemen. <laughs> yeah although like like do you feel like the players themselves probably did like Bergerman in terms of like he probably had their back where they felt like he would like go to war for them like
0: i think a, not... a lot of them yeah until right. they until they didn't like i feel right. like Bergerman is yeah. very much like a player's guy until like he gets to a point with a player where he no longer likes them, like Max Pacioretty, for example, good right. relationship for a up. very long time, and then you listen to that interview, uh, things that are not necessarily said, but things that are not said, right? And uh, the relationship at the end there was very poor.
2: Did you so, see? Um, unrelated, but did you see the uh, Thomas Drance did an interview with Quinn Hughes yesterday? No. I didn't. Oh my not So speaking goodness. of speaking of stuff unsaid. <laughs> Quinn Hughes, I'm, I'm like not, uh, you know, paraphrasing here, but he was like, he asked him what he thought about Jack's deal. And he was like, oh yeah, it's great that like the organization didn't give him a hard time and drag it through into the summer and Ooh. all this stuff. And I was like, holy shit.
1: They like, went to him and <laughs> wanted to make a deal were the exact yeah. words. They're like, and I know. Like, well, yeah, it must, it must feel,
2: it must feel nice. Like, yeah, it's like, oh,
0: yeah. well, you so know, you sometimes- want to avoid that. Sometimes in Vancouver, yeah. you just run at a time, like the whole Tyler Topoli situation. They just
1: forgot. Yeah. I always love, like, people invoke that Lou Amarello line. If you have time, use it. And, like, that's fine. But the difference is, is Lou Amorello is good at using the time. If that's,
2: you, you, you have if, to be actively negotiating.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and the one thing that a lot of people don't know about Lou Amarello is he's actually very good at delegating. So, like, Steve Pellegrini is his lieutenant in Long Island, and he was his lieutenant in uh, New Jersey as well after he wrote the salary cap with Brandon Perdon. Steve Pellegrini basically, like, gets directive from Lou and then just goes and does his thing. So does Lou Emerald's son, Chris, who, like, runs the AHL team. Lou is effectively, like, overseeing everything, and obviously he's the head-on show. He's freaking Lou. But I think that type of thing is beneficial, and I think Montreal could really benefit from having somebody like Jeff Gordon who comes in and says – this is the vision. This is what we're doing. And I'm going to hire people that I trust to help me execute this. And so the GM will naturally be a part of that. There's going to need to be some type of scouting staff brought in. They're going to have to be a part of that. But I think one of the things that really struck me was the need to be able to trust your team, like your employees, whatever you want to call them, you need be able to trust them with the jobs that you hired them for. There is no sense in hiring someone to do a job if you don't trust them to do that job.
2: Yeah.
0: And that has to go like the whole organization, right? You can't have a micromanager.
1: Yeah, like the GM cannot be meddling in the coaching staff and whatever the case may be. Like you gotta, you hired this person to do their job. You clearly thought they were qualified. You need to let them do their job. You can consult with them and have conversations. That's totally like, that that's healthy but micromanaging i think you're basically setting yourself up for failure because we've already just covered that the job in montreal is a lot bigger than in some other places and so you the importance of delegating tasks is like paramount
0: yeah uh commenter here saying that they disagree with what i said about Bergerman dale we says all the players loved berge i don't doubt that while they're on the team but there have been relationships that have degraded like ask andre markov how he feels about mark Bergerman, like
1: ask pk suban
0: yeah i mean pk suban will never tell you but <laughs> andre markov's a bit of a psycho so he might
1: yeah all right i I think we hit on
0: everything uh i kept you guys for way longer than i was supposed to i really appreciate it uh before we close things up uh first dimitri and then rachel tell everyone where they can find your stuff
2: yeah you can uh you can go read my work at ep ringside uh i feel like we have a great staff there that's just constantly putting out uh unique thoughtful stuff and we actually just recently i wasn't part of it at all but the staff put out a uh updated ranking of the 2022 draft class mm-hmm. ahead of the world juniors and uh that should be of interest to any Habs fans so if you've uh, if you've been kind of waiting out or riding the fence and trying to figure out if you want to subscribe or not I highly recommend doing so you can also go listen to me uh on the Hockey Hockeypedio cast wherever you get your podcasts I've had both Andrew and Rachel on countless times and it's always fun and we'll continue to have them on in the future and we do deep dives about there about various topics so go check that out. And, uh, yeah, just go follow me on Twitter at Dim Filipovich. I post all my links there. I share clips and stats and screenshots and pictures of Jesse you Pugliarvi's tongue and uh, <laughs> all sorts of stuff that people have told me they enjoy. So, um, yeah, uh, I appreciate everyone for, for checking that out. And Andrew, thanks for having me, man. I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of you. You've, uh, you've built this thing up in a short time into something that's legitimately fun to listen to and, and be on myself personally. And so, um, uh, yeah, just keep it up. Thanks, buddy. I really appreciate it. How about you, Rachel?
1: Uh, You can find me uh, on the Staff and Graph podcast with uh, Mikey Stevens. I have recently started writing for the Hockey News. That was a thing that's kind of flown under the radar. So you can find me there. You can also find me like Dimitri at EP Ringside. I'm part of the less writing, more scouting wise. So that ranking that Dimitri mentioned, I was a part of that. And we have a fantastic scouting staff, really forward thinking there. Um, I thoroughly enjoy being a part of that. Uh, situation there and uh, i think we'll uh, we'll have some really great world junior coverage and that should be of interest to Habs fans um and then you can follow me on twitter at rachel dory i'm not gonna lie i recently nuked my twitter and i've been retweeting a lot of dimitri Filipovich Phil- things <laughs> um but yeah i'll uh, i always retweet podcast and really like anything of interest and I will start it be starting to be dropping some research tidbits, which considering it's on drafting and development might be of interest to people.
0: Absolutely. Thanks so much for both of you guys for joining me here and staying super long. Thanks to everyone. We were at like a huge amount of viewers for like the entire show. We barely dropped off at all. So that was awesome. And part of why I was not hesitant in continuing the show. Uh, We'll be back on Saturday with, the predators and we have uh, Scott Matla from eyes on the prize coming on with Eric young from impact wrestling. So that's going to be real fun. Uh, Yeah. Make sure you subscribe and give us a like on YouTube here and,